and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, June 24th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Alice Miranda Alstein of Politico. Good morning. Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. And Shafali Luthra of the 19th. Good morning. Later in this episode, we'll play my interview with Michelle Andrews, who reported and wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. This month's patient was losing sleep, and a big bill for a sleep study made him lose even more. But first, the news. So the bipartisan infrastructure negotiations are still going on, but the action on health care seems to be moving towards another likely budget reconciliation bill. Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden this week released a set of, quote, goals for prescription drug spending reductions, starting with negotiating authority for Medicare and limits for medications whose prices increase faster than inflation. Wyden seems to want to continue work in a bipartisan manner, but these don't seem to be ideas that are likely to attract many Republicans, right? Absolutely not. The The day it came out, I uh, went up to Chuck Grassley and asked what he thought, and he described it as a waste of time. Oh, dear. <laughs> in, in classic Grassley fashion, uh, he said that anything other than the bipartisan bill he and Wyden introduced in the last Congress, which did pass out of committee but never got a vote on the floor, he said anything beyond that is a waste of time because it won't have the votes. He might be right about that, but obviously Democrats are very much in favor of some form of um, government negotiating drug prices, which that did not include. And so Wyden is proposing adding negotiation into that mix. But he, in this outline, it wasn't a bill he put out, it was just an outline. He didn't answer the sticky questions of how that negotiation will happen. Will it be based on the prices uh, other countries that do a much better job at regulating their drug prices? Uh, will it be based on what they pay? What drugs will be subject to negotiation? And he said that he wants those negotiated prices from Medicare to be applied to other payers, people on you know private insurance and other public programs, but didn't not a lot of detail in there. So a lot of difficult questions ahead and it, it seems like a lot more work is still yet to be done, so I wouldn't expect a big breakthrough soon. So unlike most of the other things on the health agenda, drug price negotiation and drug price restraints saves money for the government, since the government spends so much money on drugs. Do we think this is going to end up in a reconciliation bill to pay for other things? Or do we think that there's still some intention to try to do this in a bipartisan way separately? All the conversation right now is around using it in a reconciliation package. The question is not whether Republicans will block this. It's really whether Democrats will block this. (laughs) There are moderate Democrats in the House and in the Senate who don't support what Wyden outlined, um, and many of them have a lot of pharmaceutical industry interests in their district, a lot of jobs there. They often repeat the pharmaceutical industry's arguments against these reforms, and uh, there is no indication that they are completely on board yet. And so the question is not whether it has 60 votes, it's whether it even has 50. 
Yeah. Although it, it's funny because, you know, obviously we talk about this almost every week. You know, doing something about prescription drug prices is really popular and it's really popular with Republicans and Democrats. It's just that as soon as they actually try to put pen to paper, it gets controversial. And it's something that Biden is not really pushing very heavily at this point. So, you know, the, it's a market contrast from the Trump administration where Trump was, you know, constantly throughout his campaign and throughout his administration was pushing drug prices. And, you know, and he did actually push against Pfizer and others and, you know, did have them make some minor concessions. Um, and then, you know, right before he left office, he put out several uh, executive orders and we have yet to see what the Biden administration is going to do with those executive orders in terms of, uh, you know, he's pushed off the rebate rule, but, you know, uh, importation from Canada. So we'll see. We don't really know exactly what the Biden administration is going to do. The Biden administration has been kind of like a Rorschach test. So people on the Hill can like read whatever they want into it. And so you have people like Bernie Sanders saying, look, Biden in his joint address to Congress said we should empower Medicare to negotiate drug prices. So look, he's all for it. And then people on the other side are saying, yeah, but he didn't include it in his budget. So he's clearly not big on it. It's not one of his top priorities, even if he supports it in theory. So it's kind of like a read into it what you will. And it is one of those things where even if you go back to the primary, right, like Biden was the least interested in talking about drug prices of any Democrat running for president. I think that matters, right? Like there's a lot of things going on right now. And if this isn't a priority for you, it won't emerge to the top. So one interesting theme as Democrats try to figure out what they want to do on the health front uh, is a pivot, particularly among the more progressive wing away from a public option, which was the more moderate platform that Biden ran on. Instead, progressives seem to be focusing on expanding Medicare, apparently both in terms of lowering the eligibility age from 65 to 60, which was another piece of the Biden platform, and adding a bunch of important but missing benefits, including dental, vision, and hearing coverage. Um, Shafali, you're our single payer expert here. Have the progressives reached the conclusion that boosting actual Medicare will be a better stepping stone to Medicare for all than a public option? Or are they just embracing the art of the possible rather than pushing for something that's incredibly unlikely to get through this very narrowly divided Congress? I think it's a a mix of things going on right now, right? You do have the Democrats like Pramila Jayapal saying, look, this is feasible and popular and we can do it right now. You have had progressives talking for ages about how much they would like Medicare to have a younger eligibility age to cover dental, vision, prescription drugs, right? Those are things that are in Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, too. And I think the other important thing is that even though the public option was this this middle ground, it's never something progressives got super excited about. I have this memory of talking to AOC. like Right after she'd won her first primary, I asked her about public options, and she was like, listen, that's just not something we, we talk about. Our voters aren't excited about it. We care about Medicare for All. And when you don't have the base there to support it, it's much harder to vote so much time and energy and rhetoric to something when you could do something that is sexier and was already part of your platform. As we learned during the campaign, the hospital and insurance industry and the the whole behemoth, (laughs) they are going to fight a public option just as hard as they would fight Medicare for all. And so for progressives, they think, why go for this half measure when it's going to generate just as much industry opposition as going for what we really want? 
So, so do we think there's a possibility of getting Medicare expansion in this coming reconciliation bill? It sure seems like it's shaping up to be really big. I mean, Schumer says that he's going to support it, but we have yet to see exactly what's going to happen. And we have yet to see whether the parliamentarian will accept it. I mean, she didn't accept raising the minimum wage. And Sanders tried to say that this had an impact on the budget. And she said, well, no, it's not. So, Although I think you can always add to Medicare and reconciliation because that's direct federal budget spending. I think reconciliation is how they've made most of the um, the changes to Medicare over the years. I don't think that would be a bar. I think just the price tag might be uh, a bar. Who, whoever was talking about, do they have 50 votes? <laughs> right. And I think that's why this is so tied into the fate of drug pricing, because drug pricing is the piggy bank for so many of these other healthcare provisions that Democrats want to see happen, including making the things that have way more chance of making it through, like making the Affordable Care Act subsidies permanent, um, which is the top priority, I would say, of leadership on the Hill and the Biden administration, because that is something that will directly help a lot of people and not upset the pharma, uh, all, all of the healthcare industry. That's right. You can, you can always give money. It's, all, it's harder to take money away. Well, also gaining attention is finding a way to expand Medicaid to the 4 million or so people in the so-called Medicaid gap, those adults in the dozen states that have not expanded the program under the Affordable Care Act. They're appear to be several options on the table. This week, Texas Democratic uh, Congressman Lloyd Doggett introduced a bill that would let cities or counties expand Medicaid if their states won't. Obviously, Texas, one of the big states that hasn't done it yet. Other proposals would let people with incomes under poverty buy into plans on healthcare.gov, which is something they're ineligible to do now because the way the ACA was written, people under poverty were all supposed to be able to get Medicaid. Um, A third option would be to create a federal-only plan for the holdout states? Are any of these proposals more likely or doable than others? I think, again, this costs money, and a federal expansion would cost money, and thus is tied into things that would generate money, like drug price reform. But I also think it's interesting that, you know, Biden came into office with the reputation of being, you know, this reach-across-the-aisle, deal-cutting guy who could convince Republican governors to take these steps. And I think this is sort of an admission that that has not worked at all, is not likely to work. These Republican governors who oppose Medicaid expansion and have even fought it after their state has voted for it, as we've seen in a number of places, that they're not going to be convinced that some other way has to move forward for those people to be able to get that coverage. Thanks to the magic of Zoom meetings, I've actually been able to watch the debate in some of these states, and Wyoming was partic- particularly illustrative because they really there there was a move to actually expand Medicaid, and there were you know when you watched the opponents, it was all kinds of stuff that just either wasn't true or just wasn't the case, but it is, it's quite ideologic in these holdout states. And there are a lot of people who were intended to get coverage when the ACA passed. And then the Supreme Court said, yeah, states get to decide whether or not they want to do this. And they've been in limbo for, you know, 10 years now. Um, And we even see in Missouri, where voters approved last year, 
to actually expand Medicaid. And I believe Missouri was the sixth state and it has actually expanded in other states like Maine and, and other states where it passed. And Idaho. Yes, yeah. but... Well, in Maine, they had to wait until... They had to they, wait until a page <laughs> left. A governor was uh, yes, elected who was a Democrat. He fought it, but... Yeah. And now that seems to be shaping up also in Missouri where it's now before the courts. And yesterday, the judge said that it was not unlawful for the governor to block it. Uh, and so we'll see what happens. The lawyers are planning to appeal it. And, uh, you know, at this point, Missourians, low-income Missourians, were supposed to be able to sign up next week, and that's not going to happen. Although it is happening in Oklahoma, which also passed it last year. I do think one of the other interesting litmus tests, though, into thinking about Medicaid expansion politics is is postpartum Medicaid, because that is one area, right, where states now have the option to extend eligibility from, right, six weeks to a year. And what's kind of surprising is that some of the states that are resistant to Medicaid expansion are not so much resistant to Medicaid extension. And I think it's, it's worth watching to see if that benefit ultimately long-term changes the resistance toward how red states have thought about bigger Medicaid programs. Yeah, I, we mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, that there that states had been really quick. I mean, this was an option in the bill that passed in March for states to extend coverage to, to new moms to a full year after birth, which, which is, you know, much longer than it had been. And states have been actually jumping to do that, which is, I think, surprising to a lot of people. But Tammy, I'm so glad you brought up Ms. Oh, go I was going to say, though, that there's a big difference between new mothers and low-income adults. Yeah. And and also especially... Although new mothers all... are low-income adults, but well, now they're parents. that's true. But yeah. now, yes. But they're new mothers. It's only a year. It's not forever. And, you know, well, there's been a lot of talk of maternal mortality. And I think, you know, that's a different issue. So I'm not convinced that just because states are jumping at this option that that will make them any more likely to expand Medicaid to all low-income adults permanently. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought up Missouri, where, as you point out, the, the legislature neglected or purposely did not fund the Medicaid expansion that the voters passed. And that's why the governor said, well, if they didn't fund it, we can't do it. But also, while Missouri was fighting over that, the legislature failed to renew a provider tax that brings in more than $3 billion in federal funds every year and funds much of the state's long-term care infrastructure. Now on the table as part of a deal to renew Renew that tax before it expires in September is a Medicaid ban on types of birth control, including morning after pills and IUDs. Alice, what are they trying to do here in Missouri? So, like many things in healthcare, I'm sure this will be subject to lawsuits. It's been sort of a trend on the right to say that certain forms of birth control are either akin to abortion or they believe they actually have that function when that is not scientifically the case. Um, and so we saw this in the Hobby Lobby case at the Supreme Court where these religious uh, employers viewed certain forms of birth control as uh, forms of abortion, even though, again, that is, that is not the case. Um, and so I think you're going to see this fight play out, and I'm curious to see if other states follow and try to copycat in, in this vein, I guess, 
Um, that could depend on the legal outcome. I've seen a lot of things. This is a new one for me, is having, I mean, Medicaid actually provides an enormous amount of birth control for women who are on the program. And this this would be particularly IUDs, long-term birth control. It would be interesting. It would probably run up the Medicaid bill in Missouri as much or more than the expansion of, than their 10% share of the expansion of Medicaid would be. But I'm waiting for somebody to point that out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, banning IUDs and emergency contraception would obviously increase unintended pregnancies, which are far, far more expensive than those forms of birth control, um, and taxpayers would be picking up the bill. Well, meanwhile, while the public option is kind of off the table here in Washington, in two states, uh, Colorado and Nevada, it's becoming a reality. Governors in both states signed legislation in the past days creating public options. But like the one in Washington state, they're kind of limited, right? Yeah, I mean, I looked at the one in Nevada and both of them talk about, unlike I think the one in Washington, which was looking more at an effort to reduce premiums, in Nevada and Colorado, they talk more about, you know, what the, the premium reduction should be and kind of leave it to the insurers to decide how to do that. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, they're, they're not actual public options where the state is actually providing, you know, coverage or the government is providing coverage, but the, they're just, you know, basically working with the private insurers to offer a lower cost option. And in Nevada, they, you know, they talk about what the reimbursement might be as like a goal, but they don't actually dictate how to get those premiums down. I feel like we should call these, rather than public options, somewhat more regulated private options. Yeah. And I mean, and one of the things that's interesting is, is with the expansion of the federal subsidies for the ACA, which of course at this point only lasts two years, but maybe will be become permanent, this idea of a lower cost public option may become less appealing because more people can get subsidies. Yes, I think that that is a fair point. And I think that's a point that a few people have made, which is that if we if we make this private insurance cheap enough, we might not need a public option. And Nevada is interesting because they expanded Medicaid, but they have a weirdly high uninsured rate. But Right. We don't have any good evidence that these quote unquote public options they're describing would actually. Which which state are you talking about? Oh, Nevada. It's just it's not clear right from the analysis how much it would actually expand access to to insurance itself. Um, But I think that might be a fun thing to watch out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in Washington state, what is it, like 1800 people signed up? It's like one percent or less. I mean, (laughs) but also it's, you know, in Washington, of course, being the first, you know, I think they're looking to tinker with it now. It's not available in all counties, but this is still a work in progress. (laughs) And Vox had a really good explainer going into in detail, right, how Nevada and Colorado have tried to learn from Washington, right, by like mandating providers participate, which was a huge problem Mm -hmm. in Washington, Um, And maybe that will help. But this also all speaks right to the limits of what states can do on their own. Right. Well, they tried to do that in Washington. You know, and then there's also the question what what Nevada is doing, which is interesting, is, is that it's mandating that providers participate, which is a huge issue. Yes. And it's I mean, this is classic sort of states acting as laboratories. I think it's been really helpful. I think people in Washington, D.C. are watching what's happening in, you know, with great interest in, in Washington state and Nevada and Colorado. And, you know, maybe there may be one or two other states that that want to try this and sort of see how it goes, because health 
healthcare is never solved. Well, let's talk about COVID, which is also still with us. First, the so-called Delta variant, which appears to be more transmissible and more dangerous, which is rapidly taking hold here in the U.S. and hitting unvaccinated populations hard. Meanwhile, it appears that President Biden will miss his target of having 70 percent of American adults with at least one shot by July 4th. And the U.S. is apparently also having trouble getting promised supplies of vaccine to other countries, which we need to happen in order to prevent still more variants, including ones that won't be covered by the current vaccines, from cropping up. Has President just overpromised here finally, or is there something else going on? <laughs> My question is, how worried should we really be at this point? It's interesting that the country, both states and the federal government, have really sort of gone all in on carrots instead of sticks for vaccines. And a lot of the carrots just aren't working. Um, they, the incentives, whether it's entering a lottery for millions of dollars or it's, you know, freebies, food and drink, you know, gift cards, whatever, those just aren't working to convince people who don't want to get vaccinated. And both employers, state governments, federal government have really, really been wary of using any sticks, whether it's requiring vaccinations, whether it's some sort of passport to prove you're vaccinated to be able to access certain spaces and activities. They've really been avoiding doing any of that, but the carrots aren't working. So I wonder if we're going to start to see more sticks. We're seeing so few major employers moving to require vaccines, but I wonder if that will ramp up as these variants prove more threatening. And, you know, we're already seeing an increase in hospitalizations among unvaccinated people due to that. I also wonder, you know, those of us who live in areas where things are going like really well, you know, here in the in the D.C. area, life is almost back to normal. I think, Tammy, it's similar in New York, right? It uh, is. You know, there, yeah. there are concerts and people are doing stuff right. and we're sort of not paying that much attention to places like Mississippi, um, where there are overflowing hospitals again, because this Delta variant is starting to run around and their vaccination level is really low. And I worry that we whose lives are getting back to normal are going to become complacent or a little too complacent, particularly as you know, we get to summer and people start traveling. You know, and in New York, again, I live in New York City. So there are a lot of big employers here, but there are a growing number of large employers here. I mean, Morgan Stanley announced that if you want to come, they want people back in the office. And if you're going to come back to the office, you have to be vaccinated. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, CNN is mandating that, mandating that we're vaccinated before going to the office. And I think other large media companies are moving that way. So, you know, we'll see. But of course, that doesn't tell us what's happening in the rest of the country. And we had that terrible issue in Florida where uh, in a government building, somebody brought in COVID, two people ended up dying. And the only one in that office who wasn't affected, who didn't come down with COVID was the one person who was vaccinated. So is that going to now prompt more people in either that government office or in that county to, to get vaccinated? We'll see. I mean, you know, the, the widow of one of the people who died said, you know, we just weren't ready. So I don't know if that is going to make more people ready when they see it happening in their neighborhood and, you know, to their to their friends still. I mean, now, you know. But meanwhile, we've got, what, 150 some uh, hospital workers in Texas who have either resigned or been fired because they refused to get vaccinated. And we've got students at the University of Indiana suing the university for its requirement that they be vaccinated. I mean, I know that we have a strong libertarian streak here in the United States, but at some point, aren't we supposed to look out? 
out for each other? Have we really lost our entire sense of community? I mean, even in New York City, again, Columbia Presbyterian, New York Presbyterian Hospital, which is a huge hospital here, said that they're going to also mandate it. And already the unions are pushing back. And, you know, the union members are are a lot of the people who've been most at risk. Here it is sort of moving towards the 4th of July. We've got some states, I guess Vermont is what, over 80% vaccinated now? It's it's sort of like last year at this time where there were some parts of the country that that were getting hit really hard and some parts where it didn't seem to be there at all. And now it, it seems that the parts of the country that were hit really hard are now mostly vaccinated and getting back to normal. But we're being a little bit too dismissive of the places where it is still there. And like, that's important too, right? Because two shots of the vaccines right now does work well against the Delta variant. But someday, if the virus is allowed to continue breeding and mutating, we won't have the level of protection we currently do. And we also desperately want to be done with this. And what everyone keeps telling us, right, is that it is not done with us. And And in Israel, there's a surge happening right now. I don't know if it's surge, an uptick at least. And it's among people who are vaccinated. There's a high percentage of people in Israel who are who are testing positive. They're not getting super sick, but they're testing positive and they've been vaccinated. And, you know, it's the Delta variant there. So we'll see what happens. And I do worry that we spent so long thinking about the importance of just vaccinating everyone we could here. And we never really spent as much of our attention thinking about worldwide vaccination and that's so important. And it shouldn't have been a last priority, but we're seeing the, the consequences of that now. Yeah, because that's how we got the Delta variant. It's mostly out of India, where they also had a sort of, they were doing well. I mean, there's there's been an awful lot of, of I think, premature celebration. It's, it's worth it for everybody to stay humble. There's still a lot we don't know about this disease. And don't throw away your masks yet. Yeah, don't throw away your masks yet. <laughs> I know you, you, we may well need them. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my bill of the month interview with michelle andrews and we will be back with our extra credits we are pleased to welcome to the podcast michelle andrews who wrote the latest khn npr bill of the month welcome to what the health michelle Thanks, Julie. I'm glad to be here. So tell us about this month's patient and what happened to him. This month's patient is Jose Mendoza, and he's 61 years old. He's a truck driver for a construction company in Miami, and he has severe sleep apnea. Has had it for 15 years. So what prompted this procedure that ended up with the big bill? Well, he actually ended up at the um, emergency department with a bad headache that he thought was related to his high blood pressure. But his doctors actually said, no, it's actually part of your sleep apnea. And he had had long ago a CPAP machine, you know, those continuous positive airway pressure things that look like something out of the movie Alien. And it didn't work. I mean, it wasn't comfortable. It didn't help him. And so he stopped using it. So his mission was to find a new CPAP machine and he needed to do a sleep study to do that. And he did one at home, right? Correct. He did. And the pulmonologist said it wasn't detailed enough. They needed more information. So now he went back and did one uh, more advanced study where you spend the night at a sleep center. And then as we say, the bill came. How much was it and how much was family expected to pay? The bill itself was over $10,000, $10,322. And of that, Jose and his wife, Nancy, were expected to pay nearly $5,300 of it. Are sleep studies typically that expensive? No, they are not. Um, On average, in the United States, they are charged about $5,400, so about half. But in Miami, 
They tend to be more expensive. They can be anywhere from about $2,600 up to $20,000. So this particular sleep study at the University of Miami Health System was about middling. And why was his share so large? Well, that's unfortunate. I mean, two things. His insurer actually had a contract agreement to pay $5,400, which is high because Medicare only pays under $1,000 for that test. But also, he has a very high deductible plan. It's a $5,000 deductible on his plan, and he was responsible for nearly all of it because he hadn't paid down that deductible yet. And yet, I mean, this is a free plan for him, right? His employer provides this plan for free, but it has this huge deductible. Exactly. Be careful what you wish for, right? That's right. So... What eventually happened with this $5,300 bill? Well, when they got the bill, Nancy Mendoza, who handles most of their insurance stuff, she called the hospital and she said, this has to be a mistake. How can it be so much money? And they said, well, no, actually, that's what it is. And if you don't pay it, we're going to take you to collections, or at least that was the clear impression that she got. And so they put themselves on a payment plan and they're paying $200, a little over that every month for the next two years. So what can you do if you're on a high deductible plan? Well, you should always try to make sure that you get an estimate of what the cost is going to be before you agree to have a procedure, if you can. I mean, if it's an emergency, not possible. And often it's not possible to get that information, even if you try. I think we've all made some efforts and often you can't, but but make the effort. And if you can't, then um, be prepared after the fact, perhaps, to try and negotiate further because most hospitals have some kind of charity care or financial assistance, and it's certainly worth trying to get that help. And Mr. Mendoza did finally get his new CPAP machine, right? He did, and he likes it. He says it's he's sleeping much better. And his wife, Nancy, I believe, is sleeping much better as well. So expensive, but at least he's getting his medical problem solved. That's right. That's right. It's a good thing. Michelle Andrews, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Okay, we're back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post this list on the podcast page at khn.org. Tammy, why don't you go first this week? Well, my extra credit is uh, by AP reporter Ricardo Alonso Zaldivar, and it's on this new report or a report that came out showing that nursing home deaths were up 32% in 2020 amid the pandemic, which, you know, sadly is not that surprising because we all knew how terrible it was going to be when you, when you actually see numbers. It's, you know, just the more distressing. So the Department of Health and Human Services Inspector General had this report and it showed that overall deaths jumped by nearly 170,000 over the year before coronavirus appeared. And it shows that Asian Medicare enrollees in nursing homes saw the highest increase in death rates. And the death rates, though, for Blacks and Hispanic patients were also up a lot more well, actually around the same as, as whites in some cases, but, you know, it was just, it was devastating overall. It's just a reminder of how difficult this was and how the elderly really did suffer last year. And and ironically, I saw a statistic this week that, you know, a huge, per, a, a gigantic majority of nursing home patients are now vaccinated, but not oh. so much nursing home staff. No, there's a huge issue with nursing home staff getting vaccinated and at-home caregivers yeah. for the elderly. It's, it's it still is. a big issue. It is. Shafali. Okay. I have a Jordan Rao masterpiece for KHN and The Guardian. The headline is Hemmed in at Home, Nonprofit Hospitals Look for Profits Abroad. And I love this story because it is about 
nonprofit hospitals like the Cleveland Clinic and UPMC, which, right, get these tax breaks because of the community benefit that they provide building these giant facilities abroad, even though there's no clear benefit to the neighborhoods they live in. But it is a great way to make a lot of money. And I am just always such a sucker for stories that show that nonprofit hospitals sound really nice, but often behave much like for-profit companies. And I think this is a really good example of how that plays out in practice. Yeah, it is quite a story. Alice. So I have a story from the New York Times' Amy Maxman. Uh, It's called Desperate for COVID Care, Undocumented Immigrants Resort to Unproven Drugs. And it focuses on Fresno, California, which has a really high population of uh, immigrant farm workers. And it just really shows that when people don't have access to legitimate medical care or don't trust it or are not getting the outreach from the public health that they, they need to get, they're going to turn to whatever is available. And a lot of times they are turning to these very sketchy scam providers of, you know, alternative drugs and wellness sort of clinics, and they are spending all of this money that they really can't afford um, because they're at high risk for COVID. And so they are turning into these steroid injections and vitamin injections and things sold off label. And there's a lot of organizations in the community that are trying to combat this, but they also, you know, want the federal government to do more to crack down on these uh, scams and um, shady providers. So it's a really good illustration of the need for public health to get to people before someone with ill intent does. Well, my story is from the Washington Post business section. It's called Workplace Wellness Programs Are Big Business, They Might Not Work by Catherine Baker and Sirius Song. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And I think the headline writer here was overly cautious. The head could have been, there's growing evidence that wellness programs don't work. I wrote my first story uh, to that effect back in December of 2014, and I've had a lot of company since then. Uh, And Kate Baker isn't just another researcher. She's the dean of the University of Chicago School of Public Policy and a former member of George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. She's also one of the researchers who famously led the randomized controlled trial of Medicaid recipients in Oregon that told us a lot about what health coverage does and doesn't do. Uh, in the this case, in wellness, she and her colleagues did a study with BJ's Warehouse, which obviously has tens of thousands of workers, um, and they had some getting wellness benefits and a control group that did not. And surprise, that's ironic, there were no better health outcomes, job performance, or reduced health costs among the wellness group. Uh, Employees who participated in the wellness program did report they were trying harder to practice healthy behavior. So Baker points out that if that's the employer's goal, it can be achieved. But if the goal is to actually lower health care costs or markedly improve worker health, it's pretty much a waste of a lot of money. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who still manages to make us all sound good. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions or at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Alice? At Alice Olstein. Shafali. At Shafali L. Tammy. At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. 